Scripture reading this morning is going to be in Acts chapter 16. We'll be looking at <clears throat> verses 16 down through the end of the chapter. Let's all stand together for the reading of God's Word. Acts 16, verses 16 through verse 40. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. When they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They, advance, they advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. When they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. But when it was day, the magistrates sent the police, saying, Let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, The magistrates have sent to let you go, therefore come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens, and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them. And they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. When they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. Our Father and our God, we ask now for your help over these next few moments as we study your word. Uh, help us to learn from this incredible example of Paul and Silas, their faithfulness to you, their commitment to the mission of the gospel. I just pray that each one of us would be challenged and inspired by this uh, great story that you have for us in your word today. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> Have you ever noticed that some Christians seem to be a lot stronger than others? Stronger in their faith, 
more spiritual. Like some Christians are just really good at the whole being a Christian thing. Uh, They seem to love everyone. Uh, They forgive instantly. They have a great attitude all the time about everything. They can go through terrible things that would shake the faith of others, and yet somehow they handle it perfectly. They stay close to the Lord, and in their spare time, they somehow have memorized the entire Bible. Slight exaggeration, but you know the people I'm talking about. Don't you see some Christians and just think, man, they really are great Christians, And of course, we're all sinners. Everyone has struggles that are unknown to others. But some people seem to be a lot more spiritual than others. They seem to be better Christians. They seem to have deeper and stronger faith. Uh, You agree with that so far? Hands up if you agree. Some Christians seem to be stronger than others. Okay, now hands up if you think you're one of the ones that's super awesome at it. Uh, You think, I'm in that category. I'm a great Christian uh, in fact, they should, people should probably follow me around, maybe write a book about my great example. Uh, I think some of you are thinking, I, I don't know if I raise my hand, he's going to say I'm being proud or something. I think this is a trap. Uh, correct, you're on to me. Uh, but seriously, how is it that some Christians are so strong in their faith? How are they able to be so spiritual all the time? How are they able to respond to things so well? Those are the questions we're going to try to answer this morning. Uh, When I think of these super Christians, my mind goes to Acts 16, the story of Paul and Silas that we're going to look at today. Uh, The title of my sermon this morning is Singing in Jail and Loving the Jailer, the Christian Response to Suffering and Those Who Cause It. Before we dive into the story, let's review just a little bit. Paul is on his second missionary journey along with Silas, Timothy, and Luke. Uh, These four men have gone to Macedonia to preach the gospel there and to establish uh, churches. I'm going to show you a few maps here, uh, kind of a modern day what we're talking about so you can get a a visual. Uh, So far, Paul, in the first missionary journey, he and and, um, uh, Barnabas left Antioch of Syria, which would be about here, and they went to the island of Cyprus. Then they went up here to, to Antioch of Pisidia, Lystra, Derbe, Iconium, which is here. And so they basically were in this region of Uh, Galatia, uh, what is now today modern-day Turkey. Uh, The second missionary journey, Paul and Silas, uh, they went back to some of those places. They kind of strengthened the churches, saw how everything was going. And then they went up to Troas, where God told them to go to Macedonia. So they head right over here to Philippi, uh, which is in modern-day Greece. Okay, so here I I took my GPS last night and had some fun, so you can see a little visual of this. Uh, Just so you can see the part of the world we're looking at, uh, right north of Africa, Uh, This region of Turkey and Greece, this is where the missionary journeys are taking place. Uh, For context, Israel is right here. So Jerusalem would be here, uh, Antioch of Syria, Cyprus. This is Galatia, where they went the first time. And now they're headed over here to Greece in in the city of uh, Philippi. Now here in Philippi, there doesn't seem to be a synagogue. Uh, You have to have at least 10 men, 10 Jewish men, in order to have a synagogue established. Uh, And this is really Gentile territory here in Greece. And so there's no synagogue for Paul to go and to preach, as he normally did when he went into a town. But there were a few ladies who would gather each Sabbath day at a little place by a river, and they would pray there. As we saw last week, Paul met them there. He tells them about Jesus, about the salvation uh, through Christ's death and resurrection. A lady named Lydia uh, was saved and baptized along with her family, and thus the church of Philippi was started. Now, it seemed that Paul made this a habit, going to this place of prayer by the river. 
uh, seemed to be sort of the meeting place while he was there uh, in Philippi. Uh, Paul, Silas, Luke, Timothy, they were all working here together in the city of Philippi to reach people with the gospel. Luke tells us in verse 16 of our text, as we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. So here we're introduced to a demon-possessed girl uh, who was being used by her masters uh, to make money. So not only is she uh, enslaved spiritually, uh, demons are controlling her and possessing her, but she's also enslaved by her owners uh, who are basically taking advantage of the situation and making uh, money. Verse 17, she, she followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Now, I don't know why she was doing this, or rather why the demon uh, in her was doing this. Uh, maybe that she was trying to confuse people, to associate uh, Paul and his companions with uh, the occult, and so people would thus disregard the message. It may be that the demons uh, sort of were compelled to say this. There's numerous times in the Gospels where demons cry out to Jesus things like, you are the Son of God. And you might read that and think, that's strange. Uh, seems to me like maybe the demons uh, kind of had to say this when they were in the presence of Christ or his followers. But whatever the reason was, uh, this girl kept following Paul around saying this over and over again. Verse 18 says, she kept doing this for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, I don't think I would have made it many days, but Paul put up with it for a while and then he just got sick of it. He turned to the Spirit and said, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. And so this ends up being a real problem. Uh, great for the girl. She's freed from uh, the demon. Uh, perhaps she even became a Christian and a part of the church here. It doesn't say that, uh, but it's quite likely that she may have. But it's not so great for the people who were making their living off of her demon possession. They were ticked. Verse 19, when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. As we'll see, Paul and Silas end up going to jail for this. You might wonder at this point, what happened to Timothy and Luke? I thought they were all together. Why is it only Paul and Silas getting in trouble? Uh, we're not told exactly why. It may be that Paul and Silas were the main speakers. Uh, Tim Timothy and Luke, for whatever reason, seem to have escaped this arrest. It could also be that on the particular day that Paul uh, did this, cast out the demon, he finally had enough of this girl. Uh, it may be that Timothy and Luke just happened to not be there with him. Uh, another option is possible that Paul and Silas were taken because they looked more foreign. Uh, they were Jewish men. Luke and Timothy were Greek. Uh, Timothy was half Greek, at least. And so perhaps there was a racial element here. Either way, uh, Paul and Silas end up being arrested and brought before the rulers. Verse 20, when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews. They are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. Now, of course, Paul and Silas were not doing this. Uh, this is a false accusation. The real reason that these guys were upset is because they couldn't make money off of the demon-possessed girl anymore. They had lost their source of income when Paul cast the demon out of their slave. And so these accusations are not the issue. It's a distraction. It's a ploy. Uh, they're just mad at Paul and Silas, so they want to get them in trouble. Verse 22, the crowd joined in attacking them. So now you've got a mob situation going on here. And the magistrates tore the garments off of them and gave orders to beat them 
with rods. So sort of to appease the crowd that's getting very angry and maybe out of control at this point, the rulers order Paul and Silas to be beaten. Verse 23, when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Many blows. Uh, This was a severe beating. If it had been five blows, they would have just said five. Uh, Paul in other places, in fact, said that he was beaten 39 times. Here it just says many blows. They lost count. Then after receiving this severe public beating, they're thrown into prison. And the jailer is given an order to make sure they don't escape. And so verse 24, having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Uh, The stocks were a means of securing the prisoners a very uncomfortable uh, position that made it impossible for them to escape. They basically couldn't move. Uh, And even if they could move, they were locked in a cell that would be carved into a cave, so there really was nowhere for them to go. Uh, Here's a picture of the jail in Philippi. Uh, You can go there today and see the portions that they have excavated. Uh, This is believed to be the actual cell uh, where Paul and Silas were kept. This would have been the innermost Uh, cell of the whole facility there. Uh, You can imagine an iron gate or something probably in front, and I assume before the earthquake, the cave probably extended a bit further. Uh, It's not exactly the Holiday Inn, though. Prisons were cold and filthy, often rat-infested, filled with disease. Now imagine being Paul or Silas at this point. They came to this place, this city, because God gave them a vision, telling them, go preach the gospel there. And so far, they've got one lady who got saved, and the next thing they know, they're arrested, they're beaten until they're bruised and bloody, and then they're locked up in this filthy jail with their feet fastened in stocks. I would be thinking at this point, what about that vision? Uh, God told us to come here, and this is what we get for obeying him? What are you doing, God? We're trying to serve you. We're trying to help these people by telling them the gospel. Why would you let this happen to us? You might not really pause and think that as you're reading the story because you know about the earthquake. Uh, It's coming. Just hang in there, guys. But Paul and Silas had no clue about the earthquake when they were sitting there on the hard floor of the prison and the hours passed by slowly. I think most of us at this point wouldn't be having a super great attitude about all of this. Verse 25, about midnight, Paul and Silas were sleeping, uh, crying, complaining, Uh, Nope, they were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. Complaining, crying, yelling, cursing. These were the sounds that normally echoed through the walls of this jail. I wonder if maybe this was the first time that singing was heard here. Praying, I can understand. Praying and begging God to get us out of this mess. But singing, praising God, the one who led you here. That's impressive. And the other prisoners took note of this. I think if we're honest, most of the suffering that you and I go through, if we really think about it, is self-inflicted suffering. Not all of it, of course. Sometimes things are out of our control, but a lot of it is. You might think to yourself, my life is really messed up right now. I'm dealing with a lot. But when you trace back the causes, often it's because we made really foolish decisions that led us here. And then we have the audacity to blame God and get mad at him. If anyone had the right to have that attitude, it would be Paul and Silas. Here they are suffering in pain, 
for doing exactly what God told them to do, going exactly where God told them to go. But instead of complaining, they're singing praises to God. They're doing exactly what Jesus said to do back in Luke 6. He lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. This is how Christians are supposed to respond to suffering. Uh, Paul and Silas, of course, couldn't leap for joy. Their feet were fastened in the stocks. And so they sat there singing, praising God, rejoicing in their persecution for the cause of Christ. When most of us distance from God, as soon as the slightest problem comes up in our life, here they are rejoicing, praising the Lord in spite of this persecution. James wrote in the first chapter of his letter to Christians who were suffering persecution, he says to them, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And so, with what Jesus said in Luke and what James says here, we've got two reasons that Christians ought to rejoice in suffering. First, as what James says, because it's God's way of developing us, maturing us, strengthening our faith. Job talked about his trials as God perfecting him like gold that is put in through, through hot fire and it comes out more pure. This is the Christian response to suffering, to rejoice. And then Jesus said in, in Luke 6, don't only rejoice because of that, but rejoice because your reward is great in heaven. The suffering that you go through as a Christian will be rewarded eternally. Well, unbeknownst to Paul and Silas, God hadn't abandoned them. Uh, He had a plan to get them out of that jail. Verse 26 says, Suddenly, there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. That's a very specific earthquake, uh, almost like God did this just to get them out of jail. Uh, Verse 27 says the jailer woke, so he wasn't doing a super awesome job of of guarding this prison, Uh, but the earthquake woke him up. By the way, I don't know if you've ever had the experience of uh, waking up to an earthquake. That happened to me once when I was a kid. Uh, We had an earthquake. I was asleep. I don't know. I think it was in the morning that happened. Uh, That's a very disorienting and frightening experience when you look around and the whole room is shaking. It's like, whoa, what's going on here? And so he he wakes up from his nap. He sees the prison doors are open and he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. Uh, He would have been killed uh, by the Roman authorities since he was charged with making sure the prisoners didn't escape. And presumably his death would be less painful if he just killed himself right here. So he draws his sword and is about to end his life. And here comes a really amazing part of the story. We've seen how Christians respond to suffering. Here we see how the the second part of that sermon title, how Christians respond to those who cause suffering. Verse 28, Paul cried with a loud voice, do not harm yourself, for we are all here. Now, I've never been to prison. Um, Some of you might be surprised by that. Never been locked up. Uh, But I have watched TV, so I know it's pretty much prison 101, uh, that when the doors suddenly open, you're supposed to run. 
Uh, That's your time to get out of there. And Paul and Silas could do this guilt-free. They did nothing wrong. They didn't deserve to be there. They were beaten and thrown in prison without a trial. And now God has freed them with this earthquake. My first thought would have been, let's get out of here. Uh, God's given us a chance to escape. But that wasn't Paul's first thought. He's concerned about the prison guard. That's, to me, even more impressive than singing in the jail cell. The fact that as soon as Paul had a chance to be free, he's trying to help the guy who locked him up in there. He says to him, do not harm yourself. We are all here. This had an impact on the jailer. He saw the faith and the love of Paul and Silas, their trust in God, even through this trial to pray and to sing to the Lord. And now he sees their love for him that they would stay and care about his well-being. I think one of the greatest Christian superpowers is love, especially loving those who have wronged us, people who have done us wrong, who have done evil to us. They're very impacted when they see and experience Christians loving and forgiving them. A good example of that from history is Corey Tem Boom. I don't know if you know that story. She was a Christian lady who during World War II, kept Jews hidden in her home. She was eventually found out, arrested, sent to a concentration camp where she and her sister suffered terribly. Her sister actually ended up dying there in the concentration camp. They started a Bible study there, never losing their faith. Years later, when the war was over, Corrie ten Boom tracked down the Nazi officers who were stationed there at that concentration camp she was at, Uh, One in particular who had been very cruel to her and her sister, and she forgave them. It has an impact on people when they see Christians love those who do them wrong. I think it may be one of the most unique and powerful commands of Jesus to his followers. Hearing Paul say that they were all there no doubt shocked the jailer. Uh, We see his response in verse 29. The jailer called for lights and rushed in, trembling with fear. He fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? After the earthquake and the spirit of love that these two prisoners showed, he could no longer deny the truth of their message. He knew that they were preaching throughout Philippi that people could be saved from their sins. Uh, Perhaps he had even heard the demon-possessed girl crying out, These men are proclaiming the way of salvation. But now he believed it. He had seen their faith, their love that seemed impossible. He had seen God act through this earthquake to free them, and so now he was convinced. He's ready to be a Christian. What must I do to be saved? Verse 31, they say to him, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. We're going to dive deeper on that uh, next week. But the jailer receives Christ. He ends up bringing Paul and Silas home uh, with him to share the gospel with his family as well. Verse 32 says, They spoke the word of the Lord to him, And to all who were in his house, and he took them the same hour of night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into the house and set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. So through the suffering of Paul and Silas, in the end, God is glorified, and this man and his family are saved. Verse 35, but when it was day... The magistrates sent the police saying, let those men go. Now they knew that they had done nothing wrong. They were simply giving in to the mob uh, earlier, trying to beat them and appease the people. 
And so they send orders <clears throat> to, to release Paul and Silas. Verse 36, the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, they have beaten us publicly, uncondemned, men who are Roman citizens, and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No, let them come themselves and take us out. So Paul wants a public vindication, essentially. I think uh, most likely he did this in order to protect the church at Philippi uh, from future persecution. What these rulers had done in beating and locking up Paul and Silas was highly illegal, uh, not only because they didn't have a trial, but also because Paul and Silas were Roman citizens. You weren't supposed to beat uh, Roman citizens. They had assumed they were just Jews. And so this was a major uh, injustice that had been done to them. The rulers could get in big trouble if this was reported. Verse 38, the police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. And so now that the rulers have had to publicly apologize to Paul and Silas and free them, uh, this would likely cause them to leave the church in Philippi alone in the future, seeing that uh, Paul could get them in big trouble if he ever came back and reported what was done to them. Verse 40, so they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. When they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. And so they leave Philippi having established a church there at Lydia's house. Uh, the work was done. Lydia, her family, the jailer, his family, perhaps the demon-possessed girl as well, doesn't say whether or not she was saved. Uh, but a little church was started here in Philippi. Years later, Paul would write the book of Philippians to them, and at that time they had established elders and deacons. Many people had come to know the Lord in this city as a result of their work during these days. You might wonder as you read stories like this in the Bible, why don't I experience things like that? Miraculous actions of God, like this earthquake that freed them from their chains. Why doesn't God come through for me like that? Perhaps one reason is, we don't pray and sing and praise him during times like this. We don't behave like Paul and Silas did, yet we expect God to do for us what he did for them. You might wonder, why do I not have these great open doors to share the gospel with people? No one's ever said to me, what must I do to be saved? And again, I ask, do you love lost people who mistreat you like this? Even those who would expect you to hate them. This story in Acts 16 is, yes, a reminder of the power of God to orchestrate events and bring about a good result in the end, but it's also a challenge to us to behave like Christians, rejoicing in trials, trusting God even at midnight in the jail cell, loving those who are our enemies. This is real Christianity, and it's powerful. Let's go back to that question we started with. How were they so strong? When I read Acts 16, these guys, again, seem like super Christians. Uh, how were they able to respond so well to all of this? I think there's uh, at least two answers to that. First of all, the preparation. I think there were ways that they were prepared beforehand to go through this trial with such strong faith. Uh, one way is that they knew Scripture. Uh, this whole group was well-trained in the Bible. Uh, we know from 1 Timothy that Timothy was taught Scripture from his youth. Uh, we know from earlier in Acts that Paul was trained and taught by Gamaliel, the very best teacher in Judaism at the time. These guys really knew the Old Testament. They had read the Psalms. 
They had read the stories of people like Daniel in the lion's den, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego in the fiery furnace, people who trusted in God and remained faithful to him. And I wonder if those stories inspired them to be faithful as well. Their familiarity with Scripture uh, prepared them for this moment when they would be called on to follow the example of those heroes of the faith before them. And maybe uh, the example of Paul and Silas this morning can help you and I, likewise, to remain faithful to the Lord even through trials. That is part of the point of the Bible, is to provide us examples to follow. Uh, Paul says in, in, in 1 Corinthians 10, speaking of the Old Testament, these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction. So uh, part of this is just saturating our mind in Scripture and learning to live uh, in light of the examples that God has given us. Another way that they were prepared was just their mindset. They had committed themselves to the work of the gospel, spreading the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection. Uh, this has more to do with the attitude they had going into the trip. They counted their lives expendable for Christ's kingdom. They were committed to the mission. As we saw a few weeks back, Timothy was even willing to be circumcised in order to reach the Jews. Uh, when Paul was first converted, his very first words to Jesus, What will you have me to do, Lord? And Jesus told Paul, You're going to suffer for my name. They started into this trip with an attitude of absolute surrender to Christ and his will. Uh, Paul writes to the Philippians later in his life. Uh, once again, he is in prison for preaching the gospel. And he says to them in chapter 1, What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For, for, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Paul says essentially in those verses, I don't know if I'm going to get out of this jail alive. I don't know if I'm going to be delivered from this or if I'm going to be executed. But either way, I want to glorify God. I want Christ to be honored by my life, whether it's by how I live or by how I die. I want people to see Jesus in me. That was Paul's mindset. If that's your mindset in life, you'll handle trials like they did. You'll be able to sing in the jail at midnight if your life is all about glorifying God. I think there's one more aspect to this, not just the preparation, knowing Scripture, being saturated in the Old Testament, uh, being committed to the mission of God and advancing the kingdom. I think the second aspect of all of this is uh, there's grace given in the moment. Jesus said in Luke 12, When they bring you before the synagogues and rulers and authorities, do not be anxious how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Uh, Paul wrote about his own experience with this in 2 Corinthians 12, where Jesus uh, says to Paul in a vision, he says, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. 
So there are ways to prepare before the trials come, but I think there's also extra strength given in the moment to endure hardship as a Christian. Uh, maybe you've seen some of those situations. There's some amazing uh, things captured on video where someone like lifts a car because uh, a loved one is pinned underneath. I don't know if you've ever seen those. It seems impossible that somebody could lift up a car. There's two things that contribute to that ability. First of all, a lot of preparation. These guys are not shrimps, typically. Uh, they've been lifting weights. They're strong. They're in shape. And so they're able to do that. But secondly, there's adrenaline. A chemical reaction takes place inside them uh, in, in these high-pressure situations where humans are given more strength than we typically have. On a normal day, maybe they couldn't lift the car off the ground, but when they see a loved one pinned underneath, that adrenaline rush hits them, and then they're able to do it. I think that's a decent analogy for Christians who are able to be strong in the midst of suffering like this. Paul and Silas, yes, they had preparation. They were strong Christians going into the trial, but there's also extra strength given in the moment. Grace that is supplied by God to sustain our faith in trying times. And so you might say as you read Acts 16, well, I could never do that. Uh, I could never sing at midnight after having been beaten and locked up like that. Uh, I'm just not that good of a Christian. My faith isn't that strong. But I think God gives strength in the hour of suffering. As Paul said, when I am weak, then I am strong. It's because of the power of Christ that they were able to do this. Singing in jail and loving the jailer. This is the Christian's response to suffering and those who cause it. We close with the words of Jesus from Luke chapter 6. He lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you, and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. You will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil.